This is Acts 2, 29 and following. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts 28, 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Acts 28, 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can sit down. Taylor, come on up. Let me go ahead and pray for us, my friends. Guys, kids, I just want to say, well, they're having more fun in the back right now, some of them, but I'm, I'm going to miss children's chat. I'm sorry. We have communion. I want to be respectful of time. I love our time together. I love you. God bless you. Let me start out by praying for you in particular, and then I'll pray for everyone. Lord, I, we love our children. We're so thankful for them. We thank, we're thankful that you have a special love for children, Lord God. And we thank you that we have been called back into the family through your precious son who came to rescue us, shed his blood for us, live the life that we should live but have not, and die the death that we deserve on the cross in our place. And now he's alive as we've been singing, as we've been saying Lord, we, we ask your blessing over the children here, that you would raise them up to be mighty warriors for your name, wholly devoted to you, that they would have hearts um, like King David, uh, a heart after your own heart that beat for you, Lord God, um, that are bold as lions and gentle as lambs, that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would, um, that they would see you in your beauty and your glory. Lord, I pray the same for us. I pray that tonight, as we continue in worship, singing isn't just... Singing isn't the only worship we do here. Preaching is worship. Receiving the word, listening to it with soft ears and soft hearts is worship. I pray that you would give us receptive hearts and ears. Um, Lord, our lives are worship. Our lives become worship as you claim us for your own. So would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you exalt Jesus Christ? Would you make his word so 
clear that it would cut us to very bone and marrow and expose our sins, that you would cleanse us from our sins and lead us to King Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior, who is the King. May your kingdom come tonight as we continue to worship through this preached word. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're, we are continuing this gospel of the kingdom and we're back in Acts. And I think this is Sermon 5 of 7. We have two more to go um, before Thanksgiving. And I, it's going fast. We're back in Acts because last week we were in the Gospels. And this week we're just moving along. We're kind of doing a biblical theology. Short, seven weeks of the kingdom of God. Started in Genesis, moved into the prophets. And then we landed in the Gospels and now we're here. Um, and then we're going to spend the last two weeks uh, in Revelation. Which is, like I said at the end of last week, probably the most misunderstood but Christ-saturated, Christ-exalting, hopeful book in the Bible. And man, do we need hope right now. Uh, I, I was driving, I live right behind the Molinas, the Mexican restaurant on Westheimer. And I, it was last summer and it was hotter than, I mean, you could have cooked an egg on the sidewalk. Hotter than a furnace fan, in the words of my favorite country artist. And uh, Molinas had this, this tag on their marquee, it said, uh, cool off with one of our, try one of our salads. Cool off with one of our salads. And I just went, man, the cool off part's right. Like, they, they got that sign half right, but how about, like, cool off with a margarita or cool off with an iced tea, anything other than a salad? Like, when have you ever cooled off with a salad? Um, it's like, it, it was half right and therefore completely wrong. Um, there was a pastor that I was talking to yesterday about the kingdom of God and, and, and even this sermon, and he said, you know, he looked at me kind of wryly and out of the side of his mouth, he said, you know, Christ will be king one day, uh, but for now he's, he's simply my savior. And of course, he was, he was being tongue-in-cheek. But what he was doing is he was basically articulating what most of us, what, what you rarely hear articulated, but what a lot of us, for us, is our functional theology. That, that Jesus, he'll, he'll be king one day. He'll be in power one day, pulling the levers of the universe in total control, right? But he's my personal savior for now. And I think in a, in a lot of sense, that's what we reduced him to is to a faith that he's our savior, but he's not the king. And so it's, our faith becomes a, just, a, just an individual faith um, where he's savior and not Lord. And it becomes, it, it doesn't relate to the world around us very much. And it becomes sort of escapist where we kind of, it's me and God and we kind of wait to get to heaven. And, and, and how we live as Christians is not a, vi a victorious life where we're more than conquerors no matter what comes our way because we know he's on the throne. Um, but it's privatized. And it's in a lot of sense, since is hopeless. Um, and, you know, Christ doesn't have, in this sort of view, much to do with politics or law or the arts or journalism or ranching or medicine or gardening or um, sports or the home or the family. And, and on and on it goes. Jesus just gets us to heaven. And, of course, I, I would say a resounding and emphatic no to that. Uh, I was talking to a, a Bible teacher, a Bible teacher of the scriptures for many, many years, a couple years ago, and he said... We're talking about this very thing. And he said, how can Christ be on his throne, though, when there's so much evil in the world? And so she basically went on to say that surely Satan is the one who's reigning now, not Jesus. But I just want to say this is emphatically not the message of the early church. Not at all. In this passage that, that Justin just read out of Acts 2, which is kind of the first church sermon, uh, it's Peter gets up and he, he's filled with the Spirit along with the 110 that are in the upper room and he goes out compelled by the Spirit of God to preach the gospel. Here's the truth of the gospel that's going to set the world on fire. 
And what he, what he preaches, what's at the centerpiece of what he preaches is this, starting in verse 32 of Acts 2. This Jesus God raised up from the dead, right? And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Um, so God, wrote, Jesus rose from the dead, having died in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. But he didn't just, he didn't, he, he didn't just rise from the dead, he kept going basically. He kept going all the way to the right hand of God the Father, the hand of power. Um, be there, being therefore exalted at the hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then here's the, here's the kicker. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, and he, now he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, David is calling Jesus the Lord. He said to my Lord, excuse me, David is calling Jesus my Lord, the Lord God. The Father said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is taken from Psalm 110 and that is applied to Jesus in the New Testament more than any other, I think not only Psalm, but any other Old Testament scripture. But certainly more than any other uh, Psalm in the, Bible, in the Old Testament. And, and so this was the single trumpet blast of the early church. Was that Jesus Christ is reigning at the what? The right hand. What's the right hand? of God the Father. It's the hand of power. It's the hand of authority. It's the hand of power. Jesus Christ now is sharing the throne with the Father and what's happening to his enemies. Because of the work that he's done, his enemies are being made by the Father a footstool, an ottoman, a footstool for his feet. In the ancient Near East, you put your, head, you put your feet, when you totally devastate and conquered your enemies, you put your feet on their neck. And that is the image that David gives here of the Messiah. And that's what Peter says is happening right now. And Peter says, do you know how we know that he's there? Because he said that when he got there, he would receive the spirit and he would give us that spirit. And that just happened. So the fact that we now have the spirit of God means he got there. He's reigning. He's sitting at the nerve center of the cosmos, pulling the levers. He, what did he say in Matthew 28 at the end of Matthew 28? All authority has been given me. Let me ask you something. What authority is outside of that phrase? All authority. No one else has any authority that is not derivative, that Jesus Christ does not choose to give them for a time, whether good or evil. He's the one in control. This was the trumpet blast of the early church. And the reason I had Justin, it was, it was kind of poignant when he, he read that, he was reading from Acts 2, the Pentecost sermon. And right here at the heart, the beating heart of it is, G, is Paul saying, is, excuse me, I do that a lot, Paul, Peter, is Peter saying, at the heart of what I'm proclaiming to you is a risen Savior. He's not just risen. He's not just your Savior. He is your Savior, but he's also the Lord. And he sits at the hand of power, at the nerve center of the cosmos, at the helm. And he's got all things under his control. And we are in him and we have his spirit in us. And that's how we know that he got there. Um, this is at the center of his proclamation of the gospel. Um, but I had John, Justin read the end of Acts. And he, when, he read, when he read that first verse about Paul being in Rome, imprisoned, which is how the book of Acts ends. He's like, am I reading the right verse here? Is this what you gave me? <laughs> but the point is there, Acts ends with Paul in prison. And, and, and you know, basically we stopped at the beginning of Acts 16. But as we continue to go into Acts in the New Year, God willing... Um, we'll, we'll be Acts 16 through the end of the book, and that's just Paul blazing a trail around the Mediterranean, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, appointing elders, getting imprisoned, not stopping him, getting stoned, you know, getting beaten, not stopping him because he has a gospel to proclaim. But Acts ends with Paul in prison, 
But the gospel's going forward, and what is he preaching? Two things. He's preaching Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And that is the message that we've been given to, to preach. Why then, why then do many of us seem so defeated today? Again, it seems to come back to what I started with, like many of us have a very private, personal hope uh, in Jesus Christ alone. We ought to have a personal hope in, in the fact that he has saved us. He's called us by name. If you are in him, he has called you by name. He knows you. Um, but that is not the full gospel. We've reduced him to a personal savior, but Jesus Christ the king will not be reduced. He will not be reduced. Um, the good news that they proclaimed is that Jesus is the savior and the king and that his kingdom has come and is coming. Now, why is this the, the good news? Because of the bad news. It's good news because of the bad news. We've all heard this. Um, but the bad news isn't just that I'm a sinner. I don't just have a sin problem. I am a sinner. It's who I am apart from God and Christ. I'm born into that. I'm born opposed to God. Um, the good news, and that, that's the bad news, and if, the ba- if that's all the bad news, um, then, then the good news simply becomes an abbreviated gospel. And that is that God saves sinners. And that is true. Thank God that is 100% true. God saves sinners. But the gospel is bigger than that. It's wider than that. Um, the gospel goes all the way back to the garden, right, as we know. And it's, it starts with God making all things and then setting man and woman alone in his image over those things and giving them what? Authority and the word that's often translated is dominion. He's, they are given rule and dominion over all things. Um, and because of their rebellion from God, and when we are born, we are born into that representation in our flesh. That's how we're born, dead on arrival. But because of their rebellion, they lost that dominion. Humanity lost that dominion, okay? Um, and Satan became the prince of the power of the air. And, um, but Christ came to save us, but also to regain the dominion that at the first Adam lost, which is one of the reasons that Paul calls Jesus in Romans 5 the second Adam. And I think Andrew just wrote a paper on that very thing, right? Um, and um, also the imputation of Adam. But Jesus Christ came to win back the dominion that we were given and that we lost through our own rebellion and sin. Um, he's not just a personal savior. He's Lord and King and his kingdom has come and is coming Especially, I want you to get this, I'm going to downshift into some application. Especially through our suffering. His kingdom comes, we're going to talk about the nature of his kingdom for a few minutes. Especially through our suffering. Um, His kingdom means that the kingdom of heaven has broken back into the kingdom of this world that is broken and old and is passing away. But it doesn't operate like the kingdoms of this world. It spreads through often through privation, through suffering, through pain, through loss, which is privation, when it's, when it's suffering and loss and pain in Jesus' name, okay? Um, it's like a fist on water. When the church is persecuted in a variety of ways, the gospel and the kingdom go forth and spread. Um, the kingdom is like, it's like a root system. It's like ink in water. Jesus says it's like yeast in bread. You ever been in the on the East Coast in like North Carolina or Virginia and seeing that kudzu stuff that just cover, absolutely covers everything, that's what the kingdom is like. It just, it, and it spreads like that often through 
suffering and loss. And Jesus said what? He said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Pick up your cross and follow me. Um, the early church was massively persecuted, way more than probably we ever will be in our lifetime if we stay in the United States. Although as Christians, that could well be ratcheted up quite a bit. Um, but it was massively persecuted, but like a fist on water, uh, the church continued to proclaim the gospel and the, and the kingdom continued to spread. Um, and they, their, their tagline, and we'll see this in Revelation, was we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Because, because of what Jesus did, he turned death into a victory. His greatest victory and display of power, uh, his conquest of death was through death itself. As he took our sin upon himself and he uh, wrestled with death and won and made of death a, a, a portal into, into life. Um, and so the way that his kingdom spreads is through the economy of the cross until he returns. It's through weakness. It's through selfless service. It's through giving our lives away. It's through loving our enemies. It's through laying our lives down because um, we have nothing to lose. How can we lose? We can only lose if we confuse the kingdom of this earth and the kingdom of Christ through self-assertion, through seeking our own comfort and security above his kingdom. Um, if after the election, if after an election, you find yourself the next morning, in this case, you would have just found yourself confused, right? But in any other case, if you find yourself in an election the next morning, either elated or utterly dejected and depressed. I'm not saying disappointed or excited. That's normal. And elections are important. And what, and casting our vote and having the political freedoms we do, it's a precious trust, a precious trust. But if you find yourself either devastated or completely elated, depending on what side you're on, you know that you've probably made an idol of the kingdom of America. And you're probably to some degree a statist, worshiping the state and looking to the state to give you what only Jesus Christ can provide. Peace, security. Um, and, and so when our candidate loses, when our party loses in a big way, whatever side we're on, we as Christians don't lose hope. So if you do lose hope, it's a sign that you've tied the kingdom of God somehow perhaps into the kingdom of this world. And this should not be so. Like I said, the Roman state that uh, the gospel was preached into and Jesus Christ died on a, what, Roman cross, right? Um, it was far worse. I mean, yet the Christians were brimming with joy and hope and power and love. I mean, the Roman state, just to tick off a few things, crucified the God of the universe. Um, killed his apostles and disciples, increasingly demanded emperor worship, had zero regard for the weak and poor. There was rampant, they called it exposure, which is infanticide. They would just, if they had the wrong baby or didn't want it anymore, they would just leave the baby out outside to die. And sadly, we, are, we have been doing similar things and it's getting worse and worse in this country. Um, but they, they called infanticide exposure. There was, that was normal. If you didn't want a child, just leave it. There was adultery, especially for men. There was a total double, double standard. Adultery was common. Misogyny, slavery, human rights, uh, human rights were disregarded. Life was cheap. And in the midst of this, Christians came along with the gospel of the kingdom to proclaim. The king is here. The king is reigning. His kingdom has come. Um, he came to save all sorts, the worst of us all, the worst sinners. And his kingdom touches every area of life, and he's on the throne. Um, and they shared in, uh, in the way that they lived in the midst of this 
old, broken world that was passing away, they, um, they shared this message in the, in the way that they lived, in the way that they preached and spoke. So one example, um, an observer of Christians writing to a friend says, they do, he's talking about Christians, they do not expose their children. Another example, when the plagues would come, uh, people would flee the cities typically, which were a, a hotbed of, of plagues and, um, and disease. And people would leave their own uh, infected family members in homes and just leave, leave them locked up and, and leave the city. Um, but the Christians would go the other direction like a firefighter goes into the flame as other people run out. The Christians were noteworthy both in the um, first three centuries and then later in the 14th century during the bubonic plague in Europe. They were noteworthy for going into the plague, into the city to take care of those that had been left behind. And sometimes they died. But Jesus Christ has made of death through his own death a victory. So how can we lose, right? How can we lose? Um, it's when Christianity became legal and safe and standardized three centuries later under Constantine that its power and vitality began to lessen. So uh, some takeaways here. Um, be encouraged if things look grim. Be encouraged if things look grim. They were far worse in the early church. Um, our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world. Our hope is not in the kingdom of America. We pray for, we're, called, we're enjoined to pray for the emperor in the New Testament, in our case for presidents um, and for the Congress and for our local representatives and state representatives. But we worship and look to and hope in the king of kings. Um, just briefly on his ascension, which you don't hit, hear much about um, from the pulpit, sadly. So like I said at the beginning of the sermon, he rose from death in the resurrection, he rose from the grave, but he kept going. His rising didn't stop there. He kept going to the right hand of the Father, and then he poured out his spirit. And that's where he remains in power. And you see that in verses 32 and 33. And one question that comes from that is, hadn't the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, hadn't the Son of God always reigned? It's like, what's the big deal? He's back with his Father. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Very God of very God. Hasn't he always reigned? And the answer is... Yes, the Son of God has always reigned because God has always been on his throne. But Jesus, Yeshua, the Jew, the fully God and fully man, the human, had never before sat on the throne. And he conquered death, not for him. He did not die for himself. Who did he die for? He died for us. Okay? He did not live a life of obedience for himself. He had no, he had always been in perfect accord with his father, in perfect step with his father. But who hadn't been? Who rebelled? Who was out of step? Who was a broken bone? Who was shattered on the inside and out? We were. He lived for us. He died for us. And when he rose and rose to heaven, he is seated on the throne as a man representing us. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 and in Colossians 2 and elsewhere, we are seated with Christ if indeed we look to him as our Lord and our Savior. The one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who is alive as we were singing forevermore. We, no matter what is happening in this earth, that is your true position. No matter how dim things get, no matter how bad things get, that is your reality. That can never change. You are seated with Christ for the first time with the ascension. And they knew this. For the first time, the Holy Spirit, when he 
got to the throne, he poured out his spirit, and that's how we know that he's there. But if we have the spirit in us by looking to him and trusting in him, the Holy Spirit connects us to him and seats us with him. And we will never be unseated from that throne. That is our hope, not which president is elected. Did you hear that? That is our unshakable hope, and that is the hope that reverberated throughout the Mediterranean Rim and the Roman world, and that has been changing and enlightening and brightening and bringing real hope to this world that God's kingdom is spreading and he's going to return. He's reigning now and he's going to make, he's making all things new. Revelation 21, 4 and 5, behold, I am making all things new. And when he comes again, he's going to finish the work, do away with evil, do away with all enemies. They're going to be a footstool for your feet. Friends, you will either be a footstool for his feet or his child. It's, the choice is yours, okay? But you if, you, if you look to him as Lord and Savior, you are seated with him. No matter what's happening down here, you are more than a conqueror. You are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And that's why they could sing in prison. And that's why they could sing when they were being lit up for Nero's, as torches for Nero's parties. And that's why they could sing when they were being crucified um, and fed to the beasts in the Colosseum. And that's why we can sing no matter what happens. That's why we can give our lives away and serve and love our enemies and care about politics and be involved and, and, uh, and fight for our country and, and be good citizens and cherish our freedoms but, no, but not hook our hope. Not hook our hope into that, okay? Um, there's a reason I'm preaching this this week, right? Um, his session, that was his, that's his ascension. His session, which we read about in verse 35, right? Sit here, the Father says to the Son from Psalm 110. The most quoted, I believe, Old Testament passage, certainly Psalm in the New Testament. Sit here, the Father says to Jesus, at my hand of power until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit. What's the thing? The session in, um, the session in Latin just means seated. The session of Christ means Christ is seated. When the judge sits all rise for the judges enter the room, says the bailiff. And then when the judge is seated, court's in session. When the king sits on the throne, he is, it's decision time. And you don't come to him unless he holds out the scepter, unless you're invited in. And if you come and you're not invited in, you're toast, right? That's how things work. Um, when the elders are, what, in session, when they're seated, that's when they can make decisions that affect the church that they represent, that local body. Jesus is seated at the hand of power. What he says goes. He has all authority. No one can contest him. He is in control. And we are seated with him. He's seated. And you know, that's in verse 35. It's also at that beautiful, grisly scene at the end of Acts 7. When Stephen, the first martyr for his faith, is testifying to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the heavens are open and he sees Jesus. And what does he see? What does Jesus do? He sees Jesus standing. Wow. Jesus is standing because he has been seated. He's been seated in power and he stands to receive his man. He stands to receive his son. That is Stephen's reality. That's where Stephen's going. Jesus Christ has made of death a portal to life. And that's our reality. Um, like I said, his kingdom grows best in the soil of suffering, loss, pain, persecution, Things may well get worse for Christians in this country, but it will purify the church and it will cause his kingdom to grow. The church never, ever throughout history nor now 
thrives at the center, at the fat belly middle, where it's getting all the goodies and it's in bed with the state and nothing's going wrong for it. It never thrives there. It's always thriving on the ragged edge. Always. There's a reason for that. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If things get darker for Christians here, the church will wake up and the church will begin to thrive. We don't have to wait for that, though. This is the economy of the cross. Jesus said to Peter, what? Put away your sword. When Peter, in his haste, grabbed the sword and thought, this, your kingdom is just like every other one. And he cut, you know, he did his best to, you're a terrible, you know, dumb and dumber when, I'm not recommending it to kids, but dumb and dumber when Lloyd Christmas gets the gun, not in the script, by the way, and shoots, he's point blank and he shoots all, all the way around the, the guy's head and totally misses him. He's like, you're a terrible shot. Um, Peter, you're a terrible shot. You know, he cuts the guy's ear off. He's trying, to, he's trying to stick him right in the heart. And Jesus, amazing, puts the ear back on the dude as he's going to be crucified and die for the guy. Cuff me. Take me in. You know, speaks a word, I am, and they go down. Down they go. Out comes his divinity and down they go on the floor. And as they dust themselves off, they're like, man, we're probably arresting the wrong dude. Right? But he says, my king, put away your sword. My kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom is not this world. I'm going to lay my life down. That's the kind of king I am. He says to Pilate the same thing, right? My kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my disciples would be fighting. How did Christ conquer? How did he conquer? In a substitutionary way. To take the hit in our place. To be, what did the psalm say? Your God, you're a sun and a shield. What does a shield do? Shield takes the hit for you. It goes between you and the attacker, and it takes the hit so that what? So that you don't, so that you're safe, you're, you're okay. God is a shield. Jesus Christ shows us exactly what that looks like. He conquers through being conquered. He conquers through surrender. He conquers through apparent weakness by choosing apparent defeat. And for us, it's the same. We run toward disease and depression and the outcast, not away from. We gather them in our arms. We don't out-argue. We love. We forgive. We don't seek to win. We seek to serve. We take time to share the gospel, to practice hospitality, to pour our lives out in the service of others. We plant gospel seeds and we make disciples patiently, persistently, in good hope of a bountiful harvest in God's time and in God's way. All ethnicities are welcome. All political parties are welcome. Uh, all socioeconomic levels are welcome. We ought to be as a church a mashup of these things that normally divide people because Christ is the king for all types. But only for one type, in one sense, sinners. Sinners. Those who know that they're sick. That's who he came for. That's who he came for. Um, his, plan, his plans are bigger than a certain political party as I, as I draw to a close and then end with a story. His plans are bigger than a certain political party or even the temporal welfare of his own people. I mean, look at the early church. Um, the book of Habakkuk came to mind this week. He's a minor prophet. Um, he's one of the more feisty. Those, those prophets tended to be feisty. Really, really apposite, really appropriate, I think, for our times. And that basically the book of Habakkuk is one of God's guys, one of his prophets. And, and he starts off by saying, Lord, are you not hearing me? Look at all the violence around me. Aren't you going to do justice for your people? Aren't you going to take care of us? Are you asleep? What's going on here? And God says, shh, 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 just wait. I'm going to do something that are going to make, it's going to blow your mind. I'm going to do something that's going to make your ears tingle. Okay, not only am I not answering your prayers, I'm bringing the worst of the worst. I'm bringing the Babylonians 
to you to destroy you and to take you captive out of Israel. And it's part of my plan. I'm going to use it to discipline you. And I'm going to use it to bring myself glory. And Habakkuk goes from complaining to God to chapter 2 going like this. I'm just going to sit on the wall and watch. To chapter 3 giving one of the most beautiful hymns of surrender I have ever read in my entire life. That's how the book is closed. He just says, if my bank account's empty, if I have nothing, no clothes on my back, no food in the pantry, if my health is going by the wayside, still will I trust in you. I will look to you. I love you. You're my God. Maybe that's what God's doing with us right now. As a country, as a people, as a church. He's in control. He's good. He has all authority. He's the king, not just the savior. And he's never going to leave us or forsake us. And we have a bright future. We are headed somewhere. And his kingdom spreads through suffering. Um, one of the a philosopher whose name I can't remember because all my stuff's packed away. It was on a on a piece of paper that I would keep in my cubicle when we were in Edinburgh, in order to hope in what does not deceive, in order to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in all that does. Do you understand that that's everything but the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand that's everything but the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, whom we know through the person of Jesus Christ? Everything else is not worthy of putting your hope in. Everything else is a sort of shaky cane that's cut that if you put too much weight on it's going to slice right through your hand everything else is a trap door that's going to open and you're going to fall straight through eventually nothing else is a good hope nothing else will give you the security and the satisfaction that your heart is made for nothing else will hold you but Jesus Christ will and sometimes everything else needs to be taken away from us before we can see that right which is why I did my dissertation on Ecclesiastes no that's not but that was four years that were tough. Um, Ray Ortland quoting, as I draw to a close, and then a story, quoting Malcolm Muggridge, who, air quotes, if you listen to this recording later, I'm doing quotes, discovered Mar uh, Mother Teresa. He was an uh, agnostic British um, journalist, and he came to Christ later. Ray Ortland quotes him saying, Let us then as Christians rejoice that we see around us on every hand the decay of the institutions and instruments of power, See intimations of empires falling to pieces, money in total disarray, dictators and parliamentarians alike nonplussed. If you ever read or see the word nonplussed, it's British. You just know it's a British person. Nonplussed by the confusion and conflicts which encompass them. For it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when every recourse this world offers, moral as well as material, has been explored to no effect. And in the gathering darkness, every glimmer of light has finally flickered out. It is then that Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm. Then Christ's words bring inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever. Friends, we are a weak, unimpressive, small little church. So was the early church. We have no building. We have no programs. We meet on Thursday night. We meet in homes. Neither did the church have a building. Neither did the church have programs. We are in good company. But what they did have, we have. A Savior who is reigning. And the Holy Spirit of the living God in them. Right? Right?
empowering them for effective witness and connecting them to the living God and certifying that they were children of God, something we can never lose. Um, They understood and, and believed and clung to and proclaimed what we must. Again, that Christ is the king of the world and of all creation. He's risen, he's reigning, he's soon to return to judge the living and the dead. And they had the king's commission, not the suggestion, the commission, where he said, all authority has been given me at the end of Matthew, right? Like I've said, all authority. Therefore, because of that, because I'm not just the Savior, I'm also the Lord. And you're seated with me and you're represented in me. And I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Go make disciples. Not come, not come to the house church, not come to this place, not come. That's not our commission. Our commission is to go. To go and make disciples and to preach the gospel in the way that we live. No one's going to come in this day and age. No one's going to come in. That's not our commission. Our commission is to go into the darkness, into the world, and we will see him do great things. And I promise you, I promise you, we are working hard and praying hard to facilitate in a way that we have not before. And I'm the first to say I repent. You, to enable you. You have everything you need. You have his word. You have the Holy Spirit. Christ is reigning to go and share your faith and to go and make disciples and to make that a reproducing process. That is what we want to be about. That is what he's commissioned us with. God willing, that is what we will be about. Um, And anything that's not part of that, we will cut off. So let me close with a story. John Harper, he was the pastor of Walworth Road Baptist Church in London. And he was aboard the Titanic. He was a widower. He was traveling with his six-year-old daughter and his sister. So I have a six-year-old, Susanna. So it's easy for me to imagine. And he was going to Chicago from uh, Southampton where they, the Titanic left Southampton on her maiden voyage, unsinkable ship. We all know what happened. Um, spoiler alert. From Southampton. I'll not, not make light of it because it, it happened. Um, he was going from his church to Chicago to preach at Moody, uh, to preach at Moody Church in Chicago. At 11.40 p.m., April 14th, 1912, the Titanic struck an iceberg, as we know, on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York, and it sank in just over two hours. 15, over 1,500 lives were lost. Um, his daughter, thankfully, his six-year-old daughter and his sister were put into a lifeboat and saved. Um, he stayed behind. He gave his life jacket to another passenger, and here it is, was heard preaching the gospel to the end. Don't you want that to be your legacy? Don't you want that to be true of you? Don't you want that to be true of this little church that we preach the gospel to the end? It said, especially Acts 16.31. What's Acts 16.31? The Philippian jailer. We're getting there as soon as we go back to Acts. We're in chapter, Acts chapter 16. To my knowledge, it's the, it's the shortest, it's the briefest, it's the concisest delivery of the gospel. Maybe Jesus is on the cross with shorter. The Philippian jailer sees Paul and Silas. He's heard them singing hymns while chained to a wall after being whipped and beaten. They're singing praises to God because they worship the king who is reigning and they with him. And they know they are more than conquerors. And he's heard all this. And then they've been, their handcuffs have been broken off and the gates are wide open and they don't leave. And the lights come up and he realizes that they haven't left. And he says, he's ready. He's ready. Sometimes you give, sometimes you have to give somebody lots, years and years and years worth of 
Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done. Here's the plan of salvation. Here's, the, here's God's plan from the beginning of the world. Sometimes, though, they're ready, and all you need to give them is what Paul gave. What must I do to be saved? He's looking for it. He's ready. He's holding out his hand. His heart is open. And what does Paul say? Believe on Jesus. Believe on Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your entire household. He's done all the work. This guy, to the end, preached that gospel. Don't you want that to be true of you? My friends, we have a gospel to proclaim. Not just that he is a great savior, and he is indeed, but that he is a great king. He reigns, and the father is making of all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. We don't become his through good behavior. It's not who you voted for. Um, It doesn't depend on that. It depends on him. No matter how dark things become, we have a kingdom to proclaim. Um, Let me close. Lord, uh, thank you for this people that you've called to yourself. Some of us here, we aren't yet. uh, We're listening. We are or curious, we're investigating, but we're not yet uh, ready to trust that you are the risen Savior and Lord and King of all. But I pray that you would get us there, Lord. I pray that you would draw us to yourself with cords of love, that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our eyes, that you would make us a people who proclaim the kingdom of God and Jesus as the risen Christ who's reigning and who is returning and who holds the keys to death and hell. And we're going there next week, Lord. We're going to Revelation next week. I pray that you bless us as we journey. I pray that you would bless us as we seek you and as we seek to, by the power of your spirit, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that you've commanded us, even into the end of the age, Lord. May we be people who preach the gospel to the end and who live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.